Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have Byron York on uh, to talk about his uh, new book. Donald Trump Jr. joins us as well. We have a doctor from Yale uh, to talk about what's the truth with vaccines and uh, herd immunity and where do we stand right now? Should we be going back into lockdown? Uh, He's got the facts on that. Also, um, we have uh, what we should keep from the pandemic. There's some things that we actually should keep, uh, you know, like uh, alcohol delivery. I mean, things like that, important things. Uh, And we talk about Caitlyn Jenner, uh, who is uh, running for governor of California. Why does the left hate trans people so much? You're listening to... The best of the Glenn Beck program. York is the chief political correspondent for the Washington Examiner and author of the book Obsession and a host of the podcast, the the, uh, Byron York Show. Welcome, Byron. How are you, sir? Hi, Glenn. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Good. I, you know, I I have we've got about 20 minutes and I want to run through a bunch of things um, with you. First of all, I was talking to uh, Victor Davis Hanson uh, the other day and I asked him this question in your book really kind of I mean, this is what your book is about. Obsession. The obsession that people had on getting rid of Donald Trump and just destroying him at all all costs. Um, And I asked him when it comes to the media, the media, I know, hated themselves because they thought that they had, you know, them playing footsie with him, helped him get elected. Um, But is it is it just that or was the media's obsession with this also pushed by the elites in you know, the FBI or the CIA, any of the deep state stuff that saw Donald Trump as a real threat because he was going to upset the apple cart one way or another. Uh, and and they weren't going to have any of that. Which was the main factor, the the press just hating him and hating themselves or the deep state really kind of juicing that up and pushing stuff at them? Yeah, uh, that is an incredibly difficult question. You're right, the book is about that. It's called Obsession, and it is about this obsession with getting Trump that that began well before he was elected, that continued with the appointment of a special counsel and the whole Russia thing, and then impeachment, and then another impeachment. Um, So there was this uh, this obsession. I mean, there were there were Democrats who introduced a a bill to um, to impeach Donald Trump in 2017 for comments that he made about Colin Kaepernick in the NFL. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's where we are. It, it was an obsession. Right. So, the question is, you you raise a great question. I'm not a really good armchair psychologist, but I do believe that the success of Trump. Uh, was deeply threatening to a lot of people. It was it was threatening oh, yeah. to some people who felt that they had some manner of input and control over the Republican Party agenda, uh, and they mm-hmm. became never Trumpers. Um, it was uh, it was uh, threatening to, to, to people who believed. Um, you remember this after two thousand eight, and Obama's big victory in 2008, there was a lot of talk of the Obama coalition, a group of minorities Mm -hmm. and uh, young people. And um, uh, there was this idea that uh, that Democrats had kind of cracked the code and that they would win the presidency from now 
on because demographic change, especially the rise of the Hispanic population in the United States, would literally ensure the election of a Democratic president from now on. And they were absolutely stunned that um, um, Trump won. But you're right, there's the, the darker side, the dark underside of that is what the intelligence and law enforcement agencies did um, during the Trump period. And maybe they were feeling threatened in sort of the same way that uh, others were. Uh, but the fact is, um, they surveilled a presidential campaign, and they did extraordinary things like like the uh, the meeting, which I, I still can't get over, uh, on January 6th, 2017, oh. two weeks before Trump yeah. is, is sworn in, in which uh, James Comey, who's then the head of the FBI, uh, briefs, uh, asks to brief Trump one-to-one, one-on-one, and he tells him that the FBI has this information about him and prostitutes in Russia. And Comey specifically worried ahead of time that Trump might take it as, as kind of, and this is Comey's words, a J. Edgar Hoover move. And, of course, the reason Comey worried about that is because it was a J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> move. And you right. have these, so what I'm trying to get at here is you had the intelligence agencies, law enforcement agencies doing extraordinary things, the whole dossier, to try to expel Trump you know, from the system. And so, so there was this broad obsession, and I think the motivations were, were different to different people, but, um, but it was there, and, and you're right, it hasn't gone away. Yeah, and it, it is it, the people who supported Trump, and that includes, you know, most Democrats, I mean, sorry, most Republicans, whether they were big supporters or not, it doesn't matter. If you're not in line, now it's your turn to be smeared and destroyed. And just when you thought the FBI couldn't get any worse, there's a couple of things. First of all, I read and I saw your great arg- uh, um, uh, article um, rebutting this. The FBI now saying that the Alexandria shooting, the the baseball shooting, I mean, notice it doesn't have a name. It's You have to kind of explain it before people even remember it, right. where Steve Scalise and all of the Republicans uh, were would have been killed if it wasn't by the grace of God. Uh, just this massacre. The FBI comes out and says that wasn't politically motivated. The guy had the names of the representatives in his pocket with physical descriptions. How is this suicide by cop? Yeah, this was absolutely stunning news. And we just learned this about a week and yeah. a half ago. And what happened, everybody does remember, it was June 14th, 2017. The team was practicing. They were in Alexandria. It was all Republicans practicing for the congressional baseball game. Man comes up, asked one of the Republicans, Jeff Duncan, Republican from South Carolina, is leaving early. Man comes up and asked, is this the Republican team or the Democratic team? And, and Jeff Duncan, having no idea what's going on, who the man is, says it's the Republican team. And shortly after, he pulls out a semi-automatic rifle, uh, begins firing, grievously wounds uh, Steve Scalise, a lobbyist, is, is terribly wounded as well. Two others wounded less seriously. Um, and until he, the, the man, James Hodgkinson, is finally killed. So you're absolutely right. He, is a, he, he prides himself as a member of the resistance. He's a house inspector in Ohio, um, and he um, uh, posts things on his Facebook page like, quote, Trump is a traitor. Trump has destroyed our democracy. It's time to destroy Trump and company. 
Uh, he, he was also part of a Facebook group, like, um, which was called Terminate the Republican Party. So he quits oh, his geez. job, goes to Alexandria, lives in his van with his gun, um, and waits. And you're right, he, he, he specifically targets Republicans. He has a list in his pocket of congressional Republicans he wants to kill. Okay, and so he does it. And there's absolutely no doubt, and he's a big Bernie Sanders supporter for what it's worth. He's, there's no doubt that he attacks um, these members of Congress because there are Republicans. It was a clear act of violent, politically motivated domestic terrorism. And if you remember, even at that time, the FBI was telling us that the greatest threat to our national security was violent domestic terrorism. Okay, so FBI, obviously, uh, Hodgkinson is killed at the scene, so there's no manhunt, but they begin investigating this uh, and looking into Hodgkinson. And the shooting is in um, June, and in November, the FBI has a private meeting with the members of Congress who were there. And the FBI says, well, we've, we've discovered the cause, and they say, well, and, he's, and the FBI says, well, it's, it's suicide by cop. And the Republicans are just dumbstruck. I mean, they, they said, what? I mean, they literally go, what? And they say, look, if you want to commit suicide by cop, you, you point a gun at police, and, and that will usually do the trick. Um, you don't go attack Republican members of the House. Uh, besides... There was a there was a, a small Capitol Police detail at the um, the practice mm-hmm. that day because Steve Scalise, House Whip, a Republican Whip, was a member of the House leadership, so he had a security detail. They were in plain clothes. They were in an unmarked car. The shooter did not know they were there. This was not suicide by cop. There's simply no way in the world it's suicide by cop. One interesting thing is. Republicans are often pretty discreet about these things. They didn't leak it. We didn't hear that. This was this was the the FBI told them it was suicide by cop in November of 2017, and we just found it out because one of those Republicans, Brad Winstrup, who was there that day and played a heroic role, um, revealed it in a hearing a week and a half ago at the House Intelligence Committee, and he, he revealed it because he had Christopher Ray the FBI director in front of him. Uh, so he told him about all this stuff. And you know what Ray's first response was? Well, I wasn't director then. Fine, you weren't director then, but the FBI did this. And so Winstrup uh, sort of demanded that the FBI explain to them what evidentiary and analytical process it went through to determine that this was a suicide by cop as opposed to what it clearly was, a domestic terror attack. So here's why this is really relevant. Um, you know, they said that Brian Sicknick was, you know, killed by in the Capitol riots. They say this is the worst thing that's ever happened. Um, and they're obsessed over all this. Sicknick did not die from injuries uh, at the Capitol. Uh, he died of a stroke the next day in the hospital. Um, so they're trying to make this into really an Alexandria kind of moment where it wasn't. It was a horrible, horrible moment, but it wasn't something where they were going in and trying to kill everybody, at least seriously like this guy was. Could have been 
and was horrible in and of itself. But the media and the FBI seem so focused on only things that come from the right that I am uh, I, I don't trust the FBI anymore. And that is that's saying something, Byron. I've always trusted the FBI and and uh, and the government. I mean, you know, I've I've been skeptical, you know, and see, uh, let me see all the evidence. But I don't trust them at all anymore. Yeah, no. I, th- I think that is one of the saddest results of the last five years. And I think you're exactly right. First of all, I think maybe for your listeners, we should say there are lots of parts of the FBI that do old-fashioned crime fighting. They mm-hmm. search for murderers. They search for bank robbers. They, they search for all sorts of really bad people. And that sort of rank-and-file FBI work is something we should all be glad for. But there was a, a, a managerial elite at the top of the FBI that had become incredibly politicized. I mean, they, they actually had, during the 2016 election, they had both major party uh, uh, candidates under investigation. And I think there's something wrong with that right there. Um, but certainly when we discovered what they did with the dossier, the Steele dossier, in which the FBI actually wanted to hire Christopher Steele to do his anti-Trump research for them in the last months of the 2016 campaign. Absolutely inexcusable. They only had to sort of cut him loose because he was breaking their policy by talking to the press, because all Steele wanted to do was expose Trump Mm -hmm. and try to defeat him in 2016. And even when the FBI had to cut him loose, they maintained a back channel to him and, and continued to get what we now know were these entirely false dossier reports and then there was this sandbagging of, um, of Trump that I mentioned earlier, the whole we know about you and those hookers in Moscow thing. Mm. And then there was the Michael Flynn case. I mean, so I think there's plenty of reason to not trust yeah. the leadership of the there's FBI. The, there's the FISA. Do, are we ever going to get a final report? Are we ever going to see the final report on any of this? Do you think? Well, there is no final report on this whole thing. Everybody has to piece together as best they can from what is out there. We, we know that there really is a Durham investigation. I know a lot of conservatives have completely lost faith or hope in that and think it's going to be nothing. Uh, but there are some people in Washington who, uh, who you would all trust, I think, uh, who still think that Durham is going to come up with some interesting stuff. But it's, everything is just a part of the picture. You have to kind of mm-hmm. put it together uh, yourself. But um, clearly the FISA thing in which uh, the FBI misrepresented the evidence in order to wiretap a former uh, low-level Trump campaign aide, Carter Page, right. uh, because that would be a doorway into the larger Trump campaign. So it's bad. not because Carter Page was the most important person yeah. in the world. It was because that would open a door into the Trump campaign, which they were investigating during the campaign. If, uh, if you're not reading the Washington Examiner and following Byron York, you're reading, I don't know what you're reading. You should be following the Washington Examiner. It is really, really good. We read it every single day. Uh, Byron uh, is the chief political correspondent and author of the book Obsession, also another must-read, and the host of The Byron York Show. Thank you so much, Byron. We'll talk again. Thank you, Glenn. It was a pleasure. 
You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. Yesterday, we told you about a a little nugget in a New York Times piece. It was like third paragraph from the very end, and it was not even commented on. And it talked about how the Iranian foreign minister let it slip that John Kerry had personally advised him that Israel had struck Iranian interest in Syria at least 200 times. Now, the White House yesterday said we're not going to talk about leaked tapes. Iran said this was a leaked tape. It was never supposed to be released. It was given to a think tank. It was supposed to be held for posterity, blah, 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 blah. And the White House isn't commenting on this. Really, they're not commenting. So the interview actually happened. The media is not stumbling over themselves to get to the bottom of whether John Kerry leaked classified information of an ally to their number one enemy and an enemy of the United States. Google the story. No one is asking the question. Now Google the story of of Trump leaking classified information to the Russians in the Oval Office. They went insane. That that story isn't even true. That story, but Google that story. That's there. They question that. Every major news outlet in the country and the world were running the same angle. But nobody is saying anything about this. So it's some anonymous source. It was a some anonymous source when they said this about Trump, except the National Security Advisor and the Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy, both in the room at the time, said that never happened. And they weren't known to be Trump lovers. They said that never happened. But that didn't stop the media. The job of the media is to hold the government accountable, but they're not doing it. It doesn't it doesn't the laws don't apply, it seems, to some underground political elite. And John Kerry is in that protected zone. So did he or did he not leak information uh, about the Israelis to the um, Iranians? Well, he said yesterday that these allegations are unequivocally false. This never happened either when I was secretary of state or since. But then the the uh, State Department released information saying the the information that Kerry allegedly leaked was already public knowledge and not classified. Minute. John Kerry said it never happened. The State Department said it happened, but it was no big deal. Which is it? The guy sits on the National Security Council. Which is it? To comment on this and so much more is uh, Donald Trump Jr. Hey, Don, how are you? I'm doing well. Yourself? I'm good. I'm good. I think you and your family often. Say hi to your dad for us. How's he doing? I, I, he's doing well. I just saw him a few minutes ago, so he, he's doing really okay. well. And uh, you know, I, I think you're saying it really well. I mean, it's sort of amazing what you can get away with if you're a Democrat. You know, I, I wrote the book about liberal privilege, but uh, we're seeing it more and more every day. Uh, whether it's John Kerry, whether it's Eric Swalwell sitting on the House Intelligence Committee whilst I guess it's okay for him to sleep with a Chinese spy. Uh, it, it seems like a double standard. I would think, Glenn, that these people would lose their minds if someone in the Trump administration did this. Oh, they would have, and they rightfully should have. If your dad, Correct. I mean, this is what's crazy. If your dad were giving secrets to the Russians, he should have been impeached. It would have been a big deal. But he wasn't. 
and they knew it the whole time and they ran with it just to destroy your father, his legacy and his chances of, of winning a second time. But now we actually have evidence that somebody is doing this and they don't care. Wait, a hundred percent. And it's not like it's a random occurrence. I mean, it's pretty clear that John Kerry has very close relationships with those in Iran in power. So this isn't like it's something that's surprising and out of the blue. I mean, these things are pretty well known. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure they would have talked about the various violations, whether Hatch Act or otherwise, uh, of all of the things that he's been doing had he been a Republican. But because he's not, he's totally immune uh, from any prosecution or criticism, even uh, from a media who just refuses to do their stated job of you know, their profession. You know, it's it's one thing to attack you guys personally, and I, I honestly don't, don't know how you guys live through it. I really don't. I have so much respect for your family, for your father, for Melania, all of you guys, for what you put up with. And I mean, I would have just I would have been on the roof of a building like a postal worker at some point. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know how you did it uh, and still continue to do it. Um but, uh, you know, the one thing it's one thing coming after you. It's another to actually make real accomplishments in the Middle East, things that right. people have been trying to do f- since the 1940s. You did them. Nobody recognized them at the time. And now in less than 100 days, everything's coming undone. Well, that's what's really scary. I mean, they're literally referring, you know, peace in the Middle East was sort of like the holy grail of geopolitical politics. And we actually did it. Uh, My father's administration actually did it. Now you have business opportunities, uh, you know, flights between Israel and other parts of the Middle East. They all probably wanted to open up that door, but there was a, you know, a long history that made it a little bit hard. Now Donald Trump opened that door. And within a few weeks, uh, not only is John Kerry seemingly fueling the Iranians, the, the world's number one leading state sponsor of terror, but doing it at the expense of our number one ally in the region, Israel. Uh, you know, we're bombing uh, the Middle East again after, you know, sort of e- trying to end the endless wars. All of these things that are so popular with the American public, uh, not so much with uh, the Washington, D.C. establishment and sort of the military industrial complex to sort of use the old fashioned term there. But they're reversing one of the most successful foreign policy missions uh, Ever, and they've done so in 100 days. It's, it's, it's truly impressive. I grossly underestimated Joe Biden's ability to screw things up. I knew it would be bad. I didn't realize it would be this bad. I didn't know it would be this fast. I, I, I figured it would be bad, but not this fast. I mean, look what happened on the border. Uh, and, you know, now nobody cares about the cages. You know, nobody cares about the policies. He's reversing himself in some cases where he's going back and doing exactly what your father did. But it's a mess down there. It's an absolute mess. In days, he created that. Uh, correct. And they're wondering, they're running around saying, oh, how did this happen? I, don't, I mean, when you give someone, you offer someone everything for free, you're going to get free health care, free education. This was a welcome ticket. You know, they get to give Kamala Harris's book. Uh, to children at the border. Imagine someone in the Trump oh, that's administration amazing. did that. Uh, you know, the indoctrination oh uh, of, of oh. youth uh, continues. It's not just in our public schools anymore. It's now at the border in Joe Biden's cages. You know, this stuff never ends. And yet again, if it was a Trump administration official, people would be losing their minds. It would drive you know, a multiple week long news cycle. 
when Joe Biden does it, it's, he gets a total pass. And they don't even discuss these things. I mean, you know, they're no longer cages. They were only cages for the four years between uh, the Obama administration and the Biden administration. Before and after that four-year period of time, they're migrant facilities uh, where they're helping children. I mean, it's absolutely insane. And, you know, what's scary, Glenn, is it feels like the American public, while there are some, and probably many of your listeners, get it. So many are still influenced by a mainstream media that has shown to be nothing but partisan hacks. I mean, they're literally, there's nothing genuine, honest, or real about today's mainstream media, and yet many Americans still don't see that. So tomorrow, um, Joe Biden is going to get up, and I don't know how they're going to keep him awake until 9 o'clock at night, but he's going to get up and he's going to speak. Usually, this is when a president will say, you know, he'll spell out big ideas and ask for money. In a hundred days, he has already put in legislation over $10 trillion in spending. Mm-hmm. What, <laughs> I don't know how much more you can ask for, uh, but, uh, you know, and that, not that they asked us for it. I mean, they should just do this speech at the Fed. Uh, hey, print some more money. I want to do these things. Um, what do we expect to see tomorrow? What, what do you think we're going to see tomorrow? Well, listen, I think you're going to see, you know, a, a bunch of Democrat sound bites that have no basis in economics. You know, I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not a master of these things in terms of macroeconomic policy, but, uh, and monetary policy, but what's going on is crazy. Like you got to realize like this money has to be paid back. And I get, it's great to be able to bribe the people with their own money even though they're only getting a small fraction of the stimulus money, right? You say you sign a multiple trillion dollar bill. Here's a couple of grand. No worries. You know, they don't explain to the people that guess what? Each family owns approximately 6,000. So you get 2000, but you owe six. Now, eventually you got to pay the piper Glenn. And so this is not sustainable. Uh, it, it doesn't work. We are putting our children and our grandchildren in debts that they will never be able to get out of. Uh, and, you know, they're doing it. OK, no one's saying anything because it's Joe Biden. Oh, he's trying to be really nice. He's not. He's really nice in sound bites and on TV. And yet, if you look at the policies that he's pushing, there's nothing more than partisanry and there's nothing more than vindictiveness within them. Um, you know, again, he gets to have that pass because the profession known as the media simply no longer exists the way it was supposed to. Do you do you believe I mean, you have to sit around and talk about this. Your dad built an economy that was actual. It was real. It was starting to work for the people down at the bottom of the end uh, or the bottom of the the ladder. Uh, And that's when it's real. This is going to be a sugar rush. And I think we're going to have a I mean, you just can't open an economy and not have a boom. Of course, we're going to have a boom. Uh, But it's also with all of this bogus money, it is. I mean, it's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. Maybe 1929, up and down. Um, is oh, your, 100%. Is your... And then you, you combine that with, uh, you know, wanting to raise tax rates on, you know, corporate America who employs so many people. Uh, you, you do that by you know, wanting to more, seemingly more than double uh, the capital gains tax for people who are investing in those companies so they can hire. I mean, you're creating a disaster of epic proportions. Uh, what that will do to the economy is truly, uh, it's scary. And I mean, this isn't just like, okay, well, we believe in a little bit higher taxes. These are draconian taxes that they want to put on Americans, whether it's corporate or you know, civilian, at a time when they're literally coming out of a global pandemic. 
uh, you know, I understand the Democrats' notion of, you know, you can tax everyone. You know, uh, Margaret Thatcher said it best when you said the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. But to do so at a time like this, when the economy and small business, you know, they, they've been teetering on the brink for a while, this will be like the death knell uh, to so many of those businesses if they do that. When people pull their money out of the markets, when they're worried about these sort of things, it's going to be a disaster. And the fact that no one's saying that, um, again, I, I don't care how you feel about these things in normal times, but if you're going to put that kind of uh, you know, hammer down at the, literally the end of a pandemic, um, I don't know what these people expect. I really don't. I mean, it, you, you wake up and you wonder if you're watching The Onion uh, when you're seeing uh, the news on a daily basis because it's, it's like a caricature of itself. Uh, we're talking to Donald Trump uh, Jr. Uh, Don, uh, I don't know if you guys are paying attention to the Great Reset uh, and what is coming with these ESGs, but it explains the corporations. It explains why so many countries around the world, uh, you know, did some black ops uh, uh, work against your dad, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think that he was uh, he was this would never happen under your father. And I think they knew that, and this is one of the reasons why he is out. But I urge you, if you haven't yet, to look into the Great Reset from the uh, the World Economic Forum, and ESGs yeah. has just been pushed through in the European uh, Parliament. Of, of course. I mean, I'm not as familiar with it as I probably should be, but the reality is this. When all of these foreign governments are going against an individual like my father, there's a reason for that, and it's not because... Yep. He was good for their economy. He was good for ours. America has been like the moronic, like redheaded stepchild of the world for so long, paying for all of their things, subsidizing the U.N. to ridiculous numbers, subsidizing everyone, whether it's NATO or otherwise. Donald Trump just said, hey, we expect everyone to carry their fair share. Of course they hated Donald Trump. They had the gravy train of a lifetime. America's just going to be a dumb idiot and pay for all of our stuff they're going to subsidize it they're going to be able you know china free trade oh yeah they really want free trade they don't want free trade they want america to be a fool they want one-sided free trade where they get to do whatever they want uh and if america does anything they they raise holy hell that's what's going on for so long so i don't want foreign governments to love our president because it means you're a schmuck if these people love you so much, it means you're being a schmuck, in my opinion, especially as it relates to monetary policy and these sorts of things. And so Joe Biden's reverting that because he doesn't know what's going on. He'll put what he'll sign, whatever the radical left puts in front of him. He, you know, in between naps, he'll do a couple of those things. They'll put him on a teleprompter. He'll even botch that every time. But no one cares because no one in the media is going to call it out. That's why it's so important for guys like yourself. And it's why I've remained so vocal. I mean, I could very easily go back to you know, making money well, and being in real estate and doing those kind of things. But it, there's too much at stake, Lynn. I got five kids. I, I, I want to leave them a country they recognize. I know. Uh, Don, it's great to have you on. Always is. We'd love to have you on more often. Donald Trump Jr. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. And don't forget, rate us on iTunes. You know, you'll hear a lot of experts uh, talk about the virus, uh, talk about uh, the shots that everybody's supposed to get when it comes to COVID. But um, the guy we have with us now, you probably know, Dr. Harvey Reich. He's an epidemiology professor at the Yale School of Public Health. So this is his specialty. 
Now, he's the guy who uh, I guess we first heard of during this uh, pandemic because he said hydroxychloroquine works. It's easy. We have it. It works. It will help, uh, you know, get rid of a lot of this stuff. I know that I took hydroxychloroquine uh, when my family had COVID, everything else. I never got it. I stopped taking it six months later. I've got COVID. Uh, I think hydroxychloroquine was a miracle um, and at least something that would slow things down for a lot of people. But who am I to say? Dr. Harvey Reich is uh, here with us now. Hi, doctor. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for speaking out, whether you're right or wrong, speaking out about the things that you believe in uh, and uh, and not bowing to the pressure of this new weird science uh, rule that we just don't question authority. Um, let me uh, let me talk to you about the um, the vaccines. Uh, I get so much heat because I've had covid I'm, I'm not interested in getting the vaccine. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I, I don't have a problem with the vaccine. Um, but I know my kids are young. I'm not going to give it to them. Uh, and because I don't think it's I, I think there's too many questions out there about something that is brand new that we've not had, you know, trials on. Uh, if they needed it, my, my parents, I would give it to my parents. I encouraged my parents to take it. If I were a little older and more frail, I would take it. I'm called insane for having those standards. I, 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 am I? No, you're completely rational. And when people are, are calling you names instead of debating the science, you know, the tables have flipped. The, the science, you know, the real science, the evidence is what matters. And we know a couple days ago, proof of, of exactly your understanding was, uh, has been uh, written in an article from Israel where they actually looked at some 7 million people and their experience from taking the vaccines or having had COVID or being unvaccinated and not knowing we have had COVID. And what they found is that there was equal protection from getting COVID either a second time or after vaccination uh, from people who have been vaccinated as, as the same as people who've had COVID in the past. And so, <laughs> this means that their protection from, from COVID is just as good as 90% or higher than, than the same as, as the vaccines from getting COVID. So then why is everybody pounding? And nobody seems to be paying attention to what we have going on in Israel. We have a population that has has vaccinated. They have herd um, uh, immunity now, uh, and we're seeing different kinds of results. We have the facts. Why isn't why isn't anybody talking about this? Well, because I think there's different motivations than just vaccinating people for their health benefit. Um, I think we are in a mania. Uh, there's no other way to put it that people are convinced as a matter of their religious assumptions, that vaccination is their creed and, and, and it's a, a mania that there's no discussion, there's, there's no pros and cons, that, that the cons don't matter no matter what. Uh, I think that what's more interesting than Israel even is the United Arab Emirates, who've also vaccinated 60% of their population with essentially the same vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine. And I think their experience is more realistic that 
what one sees is the mortality come down quickly, but the case numbers not. The case numbers are uh, came down, but much more slowly. And that is what's to be expected from vaccination. And that's why, right. even though we've been vaccinating a lot in the U.S., that there's still cases occurring. And we do have herd immunity in, in many states in the U.S., but it's, it will be slow. And that doesn't matter. And as I've been saying for the whole year, it's not the cases that matter. It's the people who are hospitalized and the, the people who die from the disease that matter. And people right. are just freaking out. Because that's what separates... Right. That's what separates this from the flu is how bad it gets for so many people and how many people would die from it compared to the flu. But if you get it and you're sick and you're home and you stay home for a couple of weeks and you don't have to go to the hospital and you don't die from it, then it's just the flu. Well, a couple of weeks would be enough to, you know, to put a big dent on on people's uh, economic viability and and so on. Uh, It should be a couple of days. And, right. you know, we've, now we've got uh, half a dozen or more medications to be used to treat this for outpatients when they're, when they're treated in the first few days. And they all work. They all combine. They're very effective. They're even, we know they're effective for the Brazil variant. The, the Brazilians have been using them and, and have found them effective. So we know how to manage this, and we've known how to manage it for a long time. But, of course, can you think of any other drugs, any other approved medications that have been blocked or prohibited by medical societies, you know, medical regulatory agencies. No, no. that is that's especially like if you're talking hydroxychloroquine, especially that's been out forever, forever. Right. We know exactly right. what it is. So the fact that there that there's interference in a drug that is safer than aspirin, that has been used for 55 years in tens of billions of doses, the fact that there's pushback uh, and, and formal government and medical interference in that, there's no explanation other than a nefarious reason. There's, there's no health explanation. So I could dismiss a lot of the things that were happening at the very beginning as, you know, we didn't know what we were dealing with. Do we know what we're dealing with now? Pretty much. Okay. Um, does it ever become... Something that we're, you know, because I said at the very beginning, you know, that this is probably going to be something that we have to deal with for the rest of our lives, like the flu. But if it is even has the same rate of death of the flu, that's doubling that. And it's a big number. So it's not something you want to do, but it's going to be with us forever. And we're it's going to be like the flu. Do we does it look like we're headed in that direction? Is that what we're are we going to deal with this for the rest of our lives? I think that there's two things. First of all, this is when you, when children are affected, it's a cold. It for almost every you know one in ten thousand. It it may be more serious, but but by and large, for almost all children, young children, this is this is nothing worse than a cold. If they spread it to each other, it, it's it, it, it's unusual. Mostly, they get it from adults, and they develop T cell immunity. And they're protected. You know, we only we've only known about it for for 15 months or something. So it's hard to know how long anything lasts. But the evidence is that that T cell immunity will be long last. We know that T cell immunity from SARS one is now 17 years old, and people still who had SARS one are, are still have T cell immunity from that. So um, it's likely that children will get it. It'll be a cold like illness, and they won't even, most won't even know it, and it'll go away, and that'll be the end of it for them as they mm. get older in life. It's we adults 
who have to deal with it now when it gets entered into the population as an endemic disease, which it is. So we have a transition period to get through it that children, especially young children, will not have. And I think the long-term characteristic of this will be over the next 20 to 30 years when each new generation of, of children hardly notices that anything's happening, whereas the adults you know, have to deal with it one way or another, and whether it's vaccination, whether it's getting the disease, whether it's prevention, whether it's treatment, all of those are possible ways of, of dealing with it for the adults. Is there any reason that you can see that Texas and Florida and places that didn't lock down are doing better than uh, the places like California and New York? Why is that happening? That's because lockdown is counterproductive. At the beginning, the very beginning of this, when we had no idea what was going on, lockdown was useful in order to give us by time to figure out how to manage it, how to keep the hospitals from from overflowing right at the beginning. But after that point, once the disease is endemic, there's no point because all you're doing is prolonging the inevitable. The disease is endemic. It is in the population. It will grow to to the degree that there is no herd immunity. So the states like North Dakota, South Dakota, Texas, Arizona, Tennessee, uh, you know, that that didn't lock down or didn't really lock down, that have let the the infection go and, and occur in young people who are mostly unaffected, or if they get it, it's a mild disease, and they recover pretty much perfectly well, if not in a couple of weeks, then a month or two, then what you get is you build up a lot of herd immunity. And so we had herd immunity in North Dakota in October and mm. in, in South Dakota in October, November, and so on. And and so those peaks have come down dramatically. Same as Texas and, and Florida. The, the amount of herd immunity that's built up is quite large. And once that happens, and, you don't, and this is, herd immunity is not a function of, of vaccines. Vaccines contribute to it, but so does natural infection. And most mm-hmm. people are asymptomatic. So they built up the herd immunity, whereas California didn't. So is the idea that uh, once you get the vaccine or once you've had it, that you still have to uh, be quarantined or you can't go out for Fourth of July or you have to wear masks? That's bullcrap, isn't it? Well, so this is a subtle thing that I don't think was well recognized, and that is that just like masks, there's a benefit for the person and there's a benefit for the bystanders, the people around the person, and that's called source control. And what we've heard that the uh, manufacturers' randomized trials for safety and efficacy only examined benefit for the people who were vaccinated. And that benefit is between 60 and 90 percent and generally tending towards the 90 percent for for most in, in the vaccination trials. But what they didn't evaluate is how much vaccinated people uh, do or, or don't transmit the infection to others. And this is why I was saying the United Arab Emirates, their data shows that, in fact, transmission is not um, benefit quite nearly as well as, as vaccine, vaccination for the person. So the mm-hmm. vaccines cut the individual's risk by 90% of getting covid but they only cut the risk of transmission by 50 to 60%. And that's why the case numbers go on for a long time, even though the mortality goes down. And I think mm-hmm. that's really, we've been sold 
the idea that if these vaccines prevent the disease by 90%, then why can't we just go out and have normal life? And the answer is because they don't prevent transmission nearly as much, and so it will still spread. Now, the spreading, is, as I said, is not necessarily bad. If the people who are at high risk, who will do poorly if they get it, are adequately protected, either by vaccination or early treatment or prevention with hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and other, other medications, if they're adequately uh, protected, then the society reopens like normal. Our schools should be open. Day camps should be open, um, you know, because we, that is how you get herd immunity in safe, natural, protected ways. And, and you protect high-risk people by keeping them uh, basically separated to a certain degree, as well as having vaccination and, and prevention and treatment. And I think that's the whole way that, that this we work out of this. Doctor, um, it is a pleasure pleasure to talk to you. Thank you uh, so much for the work that you do. And uh, keep your spine. You are an inspiration to a lot of people um, that you are willing to take the hits uh, from from you know your own your own circles. Uh, thank you for that, Doctor Harvey Reich. You know, uh, go ahead. To talk to you. And I was just going to say, good, good na- to nature, you know, speaks to us through science, and I don't consider that nature lies to me. I, nature tells the truth. I just have to be open to, to listening to it, and I'm just a messenger here. Good for you. Dr. Harvey Reich, uh, epidemiology professor at the Yale School of Public Health.